this is the Abstract Journal Podcast. My name is Kevin Clark. I've been writing fiction for over 30 years. I realize that you've probably never heard of me, but perhaps I'm the greatest fiction writer that you've never heard of. This is the third episode in a story that I wrote over 20 years ago titled Buy Me Some Pickles and Cracker Jacks. It's set in the late 40s, early 1950s, in the Midwest, in a fictional town called Pimpton, Ohio. It's about baseball, love, religion, racism, and baseball. This is Buy Me Some Pickles and Cracker Jacks, Episode 3. Pickles players were ecstatic over the outcome of the game. With good reason, it was only their eighth win of the season and their first in three weeks. All the players, as well as the assistant coaches, congratulated their new skipper after the game. Even Herman, who had been extremely disgruntled at the start of the game, gave him an exuberant bear hug. Junior Edwards went out of his way to shake hands with him, though he was still uncertain how Hannes was going to treat him. Estelle was a bit disappointed when Hannes accepted an offer to celebrate the victory with the team by having a few drinks at the only drinking establishment in Pimpton known as the Bonnie Lou. Ever since the day Edwards broke Hannes's leg, he had developed a rather dubious reputation as a drinker. The more alcohol that was absorbed into his bloodstream, the more belligerent he became. The evening his leg was set in a cast, he had gone out with Jeff Spencer, Rod Terrace, Herm Rogers, and a few more of their classmates for his initial experience with booze. After polishing off a couple fifths of whiskey, which they had lifted from Terrace's old man's liquor cabinet, Hannes made them take him to Edward's house. A couple of the boys helped him onto the porch, where he challenged the coach while brandishing a tire iron. Edward's refusal to duel only incensed Hines more. In a desperate act to draw him out, he hurled the iron through the window of the front door. Needless to say, the police became involved at that point, and Mr. and Mrs. Hines had to pick up their son at the jailhouse. Unfortunately, it wouldn't be the last time they'd have to post bail for their boy. On this particular evening, however, Hannes only downed a couple beers with his players and left to celebrate with his family. The Hines family celebrated the event in their own mild manner. Hannes' mother and Estelle had baked a round cake and decorated it like a baseball. Mr. Hines, Hannes' father, had made some homemade ice cream. He was bothered that he couldn't be at the ballpark for the game since he didn't get off work at the pickle plant until 4 in the afternoon, and the game had begun at 2.35. Lou was excited. He tore up a bunch of papers to make confetti to throw at his dad as he walked in the door. Unfortunately, no one checked the papers he was tearing up beforehand, and they didn't find out until they were cleaning up the mess that it was their household bills. Mr. and Mrs. Hines were proud of their son, as were Lou and Veronica of their father. Estelle, on the other hand, masked her trepidation of what she was certain would come to pass. Overall, the family enjoyed a memorable evening. They carried on until close to midnight, it was then that Mr. Hines announced he had to be getting home so he could get some rest before going to work in the morning. Bright and early the next day, Hannes rose and returned to the office, stopping on the way to pick up the morning paper off of the front porch. 
just as he had always done. At the office, he was greeted by his co-workers, who were thrilled that he had been awarded the coaching job. After they had all congratulated him, he sat down at his old desk to read the sports page like he had done every day for the past 10 years. Seeing his own name in print was a thrill, and it took him back to his high school days as a promising young shortstop. When he had finished the article about the game, he folded the paper, laid it on his desk, and went to the storage closet. There he picked up a box and carried it back to the desk where he cleared all the contents from inside and on top of his desk and placed them in the box. After saying goodbye to his co-workers, he drove to the ballpark where the coach's office was located just off the locker room. Hannes said that despite the joy of being the new manager of his own baseball team, that drive to the ballpark was a particularly sad and lonely one. He thought about the people whom he had worked alongside for the previous 10 years. He would often say in later years, no matter how well your intentions are when you tell people that you'll keep in touch with them, you very seldom do. That evening, the Pickles played a night game against the Elks, in which they were again victorious. Mr. Hines got to enjoy the game from the Pickles bench. Of course, he would never admit that he enjoyed it, since he wasn't permitted to just sit and watch, because his son insisted that he keep statistics. Though the Pickles already had a team statistician, it wasn't enough for Hannes, who wanted to keep stats on every scenario, no matter how insignificant it may have seemed. Mr. Pym, despite Hannes' consistent pleading, never permitted Hannes to place his father on the team payroll. He did, however, issue Mr. Hines a uniform, but he was unable to accompany the team on road trips until he retired in 1964. The final game of the series with Elkton was a rout, and that was putting it mildly. The Pickles players were now feeling something they hadn't felt before as a group, confidence. All but one player in the starting lineup collected at least two hits and crossed the plate at least once. Added to that were three hits apiece by reserves Farnham Smitty, Casper Stevens, Herman Rogers, and Coyle Callan off the bench. So after wishing Hannes good luck and telling him he'd need it, Frank Stiltz left Pimpton with his tail between his legs as the first victim of Hannes Hines' reign of terror on the Northwest League. Not only had his team been swept, and not only had he suffered the most humiliating defeat in his career, 34-1, but the Roseville team had won two out of three from Big Neck. The Elks were now trailing the Republicans by half a game. Fortunately for the Republicans, they had already finished their six games with the Pickles. Unfortunately, however, Stilts, his Elks still had three games left with Pimpton. After that Elkton series, Hannes made his first alterations to the batting order. The starting lineup was probably the best players he had, with the exception of Casper Stevens, who he believed was good enough to play every day. Since Casper wasn't able to make road games, Hannes feared starting him at home might lower team morale while on the road. Regardless of their 34-1 shellacking of the Elks, which he knew was more of a fluke than anything else, Hannes believed his team would produce better in the long run with a different order. The biggest change was flip-flopping Junior and Sam between leadoff and cleanup. Junior was faster and could hit for average. Hannes wanted to do this from the beginning, but thought that the team needed a little more confidence before he made any big changes. Sam had a lot of pop in his bat, and if the Pickles could get runners on base, he was certain that Sam could drive them home. 
He left Wally Spring in the number two spot. Paul Thurston was jumped up to the third position, and Carter Stevens was moved to fifth. He slid McGill up from seventh to sixth, and Sid Truffle dropped back from fifth to seventh, and Harvey Marshall was left in the eighth spot, with the starting pitcher always occupying the bottom of the order. The new order worked just the way Hannes had envisioned it. Sam Jasper drove in four runs, and Carter Stevens knocked in two more. Coupled with seven strong innings by starting pitcher Whiskey Jack Adams and two flawless innings of relief by Otis Hatfield, the Pickles won 6-3. In the process, they extended their first winning streak of the season to four, with the win over the visiting Stuffers from Bluff Point, Indiana. Hannes' scheme continued producing results throughout the Bluff Point series, with Jasper and Stevens driving in ten runs between them over the next two games. Six of those RBIs were the result of Junior Edwards' foot crossing the plate. The only setback was Paul Thurston, who was miserably disappointed in his own performance. While the other players were heading home for one last night's sleep in their own beds before departing for a 12-game road swing, Paul walked into the coach's office. With his head hanging low and his face elongated, Paul apologized for his 2-for-16 slump during the series. Hannes made him take a seat and then went to his filing cabinet and pulled out a folder with the stats he had had his father recording. He sat down on the corner of the desk and began flipping through the file. He smiled as he found the page he was looking for and began reading. Runner on second base, no outs, ground out to second. Runner advances to third. Men on second and third, one out, ground out to shortstop. Runner scores from third, second moves to third. He turned the folder over to Paul to finish reading. Paul found where Hannes had stopped and read on from there to himself. Runner on second, no outs, fly out to right fielder, runner goes to third. Man on first, one out, slow ground out to second, advancing runner. Man on first, no outs, sacrifice punt, runner to second. Man on first and second, no outs, sacrifice punt, both runners advance. Bases loaded, two outs, two run double. Man on second, no outs, ground out to second base, runner advances. Man on third, one out, fly out to center field, runner scores. No one on, no one out, line drive to third. Man on first, one out, foul out to catcher. No outs, one on, line drive to center fielder. Runner on second, one out, ground out to third, runners advance. Man on first and second, one out, fly out to right fielder. Runner on second, moves to third. Bases empty, two outs, fly out to left. Then Paul gave the folder back to Hannes. The coach reviewed the list again before looking Paul in the eye and saying, 16 at-bats, 4 RBIs, 12 runners advanced, and only once with a runner on base did you fail to move him over. If you're asking me as long as you're moving base runners up like that, I could care less if you get another hit the rest of the season. Hannes slid off the desk and walked around behind it and took his seat. With his hands folded, he leaned forward and spoke again. Look, Paul, my biggest concern is winning ball games. What you did in that last series helped this team to do just that. You're hitting the ball real good. You didn't strike out once. As long as you keep doing like you're doing, two things will happen. Number one, you'll start getting hits. And more importantly, this team will keep on winning baseball games. Paul Thurston didn't know what to say. He was beginning to feel a little childish for being so upset in the first place. So he just smiled and thanked Hannes for setting him straight. I guess I just wasn't looking at it that way, he admitted before leaving. 
The next morning Estelle had tears in her eyes as she kissed her husband goodbye before he boarded the bus. It would be two weeks before he'd be back home. The longest that they had ever been apart before this was when Mr. Hines had taken him on a weekend fishing trip up to Lake Erie. That was when Lou was still a baby, so she had the chores of caring for an infant to occupy her time. She didn't have the slightest idea what she would do herself for two weeks without her husband now. As Hannes ascended the steps of the bus, she felt a wrenching around her heart as if he were carrying it on board with his luggage. Tiny droplets from the morning mist gathered on the silver bus, trimmed and lettered with forest green of the Pimpton pickles. She allowed herself to become so entangled in watching the beads roll down the side of the coach that she almost missed her husband's hand bidding her farewell. Reluctantly, her hand raised, though she hadn't the will to wave back. Yet she allowed it to linger above her head until the bus had disappeared. After it pulled away from the stadium, she sat there in her car and cried for an hour before she could pull herself together enough to drive home. Pulling a hanky from her handbag, she wiped the tears from her face. With her right hand, she adjusted the rearview mirror to check her makeup. It revealed streaks flowing down her cheeks. Then she focused her red swollen eyes and saw the eyes of her mother staring back at her. Pushing the mirror away and choking back even more tears, she turned the key in the ignition and started for home. The schedule makers weren't kind to the pickles. They set up four-way series on the same road trip. The team would have to crisscross the league. It began easy enough with a simple drive over to Colton in southern Ohio. After that, it got crazy. First, they drove over to Big Neck, Illinois, just 20 miles east of the Mississippi River. Next, they traveled to Gulliver, Michigan in the Upper Peninsula to play against the Pike. Then they drove back to Illinois to the town of Freeport before returning home. Their win streak did continue, however, against the Colton Miners where they swept the series. All three games were close, but Hannes' signal stealing came into play for the first time. During the 10 years prior to Hannes taking over the managerial post, whenever the Pickles were playing at home, he would religiously be at the ballpark. He could always be found in the same seat behind the home team dugout on the first base side. He always kept a scorecard and would make notes on the back of it. When the missus accompanied him, she would complain about sitting in the same place and he would have to valiantly defend his reason. He could watch the opponent's coach and steal his signals and occasionally steal their catcher's signals at the same time. And best of all, the only time he had to look at the face of the Pickles manager, Ignatius Edwards, was when he came out to make a pitching change. With the Pickles clean to a 3-2 lead in the bottom of the seventh, the Miners were threatening with a runner on third and one out. Colton's third base coach situated his left hand on the back of his neck and methodically rotated his head to the right, as if he had a creak in his neck. From his ten years of monitoring from the bleachers, Honest knew at a glance that the miners had just signals for the squeeze play. He motioned in to Jasper to call for a pitch out. It worked like a charm. The man on third was caught in a rundown, and the runner was enticed to ground out to Sid Truffle on the next pitch to end the inning and get the pickles out of the jam. Likewise, in the second game, this time with men on the corners and no outs, the third base coach signaled for the hit and run by simply spitting towards the baseline instead of towards the dugout, which he usually did. Hannes countered that with a pickoff at third, which caught the runner napping. Then the runner at first tried to steal second on the play and was caught in a rundown, 
for an unlikely double play. With a possible big inning by the Miners squelched, Kempton went on to win that game 4-2. In the third game, after the Pickles had taken a 5-4 lead in the top of the 13th on a Carter Stevens home run, the Miners were threatening. Again, runners were on the corners and no outs. This time, the third base coach clapped his hands twice, followed by removing his cap and running his fingers through his hair. This action prompted the first base coach to remove his cap, rub his bald head, and then return his cap and clap three times. Did you catch that honest question, the assistant? I sure did, replied Dresden, who hadn't the slightest clue what was going on. He had been too occupied at crowing to Cole Cowan about his days in the majors. What do you want to do about it? Go out to the mound and fill Odie and Herman on it, Hines insisted, all the while enjoying seeing Luke squirming over not being certain as to what was transpiring on the field. After the second game was completed, Dresden had boasted to several of the players that he had picked up on the signals also. Hannes overheard the conversation and somehow doubted the validity of his assistant coach's comments. What do you recommend I tell them about it? inquired the old-timer. Figuring that was as close to an admittance of ignorance as he was bound to receive from Luke, his response was, It's a double steal. Have them do like we practiced. After Dresden returned from the conference on the hill, Otis Hatfield tossed a pitch out to Herman Rogers, who had been brought in in the 10th inning to replace Jasper. Herm came up throwing, but instead of throwing down a second, he went right back to Otis. The Colton base runner from third came charging home, thinking the ball had been thrown to second. Hatfield flipped it back to Rogers for the tag on the runner from third. Now, with one away, they intentionally walked the next batter. The next man up hit into a 6-4-3 double play, and the Pickles completed the sweep.